Hello, you're listening to Global Local. I'm Ingrid Kohler, and this is a new podcast highlighting local solutions to global challenges. Each episode will bring you local government policy and best practice from around the world. We'll talk to people who work in or with local government and communities about their experiences and how you can apply global learning locally. This podcast is brought to you by the Local Government Information Unit, or LGIU. We are a local government membership organization and think tank. We're nonpartisan and nonprofit and passionate about localism. We started in the UK almost 40 years ago, and we work in the Republic of Ireland and Australia too. Now we're seeking to share learning around the globe with our global local newsletter and local democracy research center. You can find out more about those at lgiu.org. We've been podcasting for a couple of years at LGIU Fortnightly, and the podcast you're about to hear was first shared under that handle. We're really excited about Global Local, and we hope you will be too. Subscribe in your favorite podcast app and tell a colleague. Thanks for listening. Today, I want to introduce something that we're hoping, with your help, is a big success. LGIU Global Local. It's definitely true that out of adversity can come inspiration. About a year and a half ago, we started collecting international stories about COVID-19. Some came from our existing member-only daily news service, and some we gathered from around the world. Understanding the problems other communities were facing during different waves of the pandemic helped people prepare in their own localities. Celebrating successes from elsewhere helped keep people motivated in their own communities. From its early inception, when we were still all grappling with what lockdown really meant, to dealing with the impact of COVID on trust, elections, communications, to looking toward recovery and building on the lessons of resilience, we learned a lot and hope others got a lot out of the pandemic bulletin too. We know the pandemic isn't over and recovery is a long road. LGIU will continue to cover important COVID-19 developments, but we want to shift our focus to sharing innovation and information that supports sustainable, successful communities around the globe in a style that's practical enough to drive inspiration and actual implementation. That's why we're phasing out the pandemic bulletin and trying out a new global local newsletter. There will be a fresh focus on the now normal and how local governments around the world are working with their communities to build better, more sustainable places. We will showcase innovative local responses to pressing global issues each week, plus the latest insights from LGIU's own team and members worldwide. This episode is a little taste of what we're hoping to bring you. Each week's newsletter will explore a common theme faced in communities everywhere. Our first ever edition will focus on community gardens and food security. Community gardens have emerged as a popular way of addressing some of the opportunities and challenges presented by the pandemic. They can continue that spirit of togetherness felt by many at the height of the crisis and offer new ways of connecting with nature in urban centers. New spaces for urban agriculture are also being trialed across the globe as a partial solution for rising food access inequities and as a way of engaging people struggling with money or work and as a sustainable response to surging climate threats. In the podcast today, we'll be hearing from Greg Potter, a community gardens coordinator in Cincinnati, Ohio in the U.S., about the work that they're doing, as well as a really personal take on how empowering growing your own food can be. I'll also be talking to my LGIU colleague, Alice Creasy, who is our resident champion for Grow Your Own and community gardening. And together, we'll highlight just some of the resources featured in our first ever Global Local Recap. 
And finally, we'll take a look back. We'll be bringing you some of the sounds from our archive from one of my very favorite ever episodes, a walking tour of the community orchard. First, let's hear from Greg Potter of Cincinnati's Civic Gardens. Well, hi, Ingrid. Thank you so much for having me today. My name is Greg Potter. I'm the Community Gardens Coordinator here at the Civic Garden Center of Greater Cincinnati. Um, And I actually have a challenging time answering the question, what does a Community Garden Coordinator exactly do at the Civic Garden Center? Um, And what we do is we're kind of backstop support for our Community Garden Network, um, which is currently around 76 community gardens around in the greater Cincinnati area. And that can look like education, connection, to resources. Often we can be a conduit for donations out into our garden spaces. So there's no day-to-day tasks per se. It's all kind of reacting to needs and opportunities and just trying to make our community garden network as strong as re- and as resilient as possible. I mean, you talk about this amazing community garden network. What does that look like in practice? Um, the 76 gardens, like, are they all the same? Are they different? What are they like? So there are no two that are the same. Um, one of our guiding principles is that we do not go out into communities to start gardens. What we attempt to do is raise awareness of all of the benefits of community gardening. And then we wait for somebody within that community to come to us and say, I want one. Um, And then through a training series, we've got a 12-class training series we host annually. We then help those people shape exactly what that looks like to benefit their community and their gardeners in the most unique way possible. So often gardens look similar, but no two gardens look the same. Now, tell us a little bit more about the Civic Garden Center. What's your history and how have you got where you are now? Well, this is actually a really fascinating time to be asking that question because we were started in 1942 um, and we were uh, started in response to the Victory Garden effort during World War II. And our history with the Victory Garden effort was actually during World War I, the attempt was made and was not actually very successful. And one of the challenges to success they found was that there wasn't enough education around the resources that were given to people to be Victory Gardeners. And so in 1942, during World War II, the Victory Garden effort was started again, and the Civic Garden Center was formed to be that educational resource, to be that spot in the city that helped people create Victory Gardens. And so, you know, over time, our mission has morphed a little bit, but it's actually stayed true to the idea of educating around growing things. And then during 1980, sort of a response to the the 70s white flight out of our big cities. The community garden effort started up again in the United States. And in 1980, we started our first community garden in our Over the Rhine neighborhood, which is called the Over the Rhine People's Garden. So our program celebrated its 40th anniversary last year during the pandemic, which was sort of a very interesting milestone, a mile marker, because it was more relevant possibly in 2020 than it was even in 1980 when we first started it. Our organization also does some programming around environmental education, some adult horticultural education. We work with a lot of school gardens. Um, We're actually getting ready in a few minutes to start a compost kids field trip where children come in and learn about compost. Um, If you happen to hear hear some feet stomps in the background, that may be (laughs) the kids arriving a little bit early for the field trip. Um, And so that's what we're looking at, and that's kind of where our programming is. But the reason I mentioned that it was timely is that this past year, in response to the pandemic, we ramped up an entire series of monthly classes around Victory Garden once again. 
So teaching people how to grow food at their homes, in their backyards, um, you know, people were concerned about food security last year. They were concerned about just their ability to get what produce they needed. And they were also just looking for things to do for their mental health or just activities. And so we found people reaching out to us about growing food and we stepped up and created a virtual programming series that ran on a monthly basis last year. That sounds fantastic. And I think a lot of community and local government organizations have seen an uptick in interest in people growing their own food or supporting nature in other ways, watering trees on their streets, which is not not quite the same thing, but, you know, that connection with nature. And it's wonderful to see, but one has to wonder, like, how sustainable that is over time. Like, how do we keep the interest alive? So what are you guys doing to carry on in the future? Well, so that's a great question, and it's actually a very good observation and a likely possibility that, you know, there's going to be some people, um, some percentage of people that got into gardening this last year that won't remain in gardening. I actually joined the Civic Garden Center um, as a result of the Great Recession. You know, I started volunteering here and with the idea of taking advantage of the education here to actually produce more food in my own backyard. There were several people sort of came through at that time with me, um, and some have fallen away from the activity of gardening as the economy improved. So that is a likely scenario. Um, what we'd like to do, and what we're so we're continuing on with the education, but what we try to point out is sort of the breadth of the advantages of gardening. You alluded to, I think, mental health earlier. To be honest, my backyard garden now is not a prime driver of food production for me, but it is the place that I go and unwind after work. Um, It is my stress relief. Um, I have shifted a lot of my annual vegetable production to more herbs and more aromatics, and I try to go out in the garden at the end of the workday and decompress a bit. Fantastic. As that makes me feel uh, less guilty talking about this because I am definitely with you. Yeah, I grow some herbs, but I also grow a lot of flowers because that color uh, that I can sustain over the whole summer just it makes me really happy when I when I look out into my garden. Um, but you know, I I've been gardening my whole my whole life, so and it's it's just a wonderful thing. I wanted to ask you about you now. You are a community organization, and how you're fun Funded and what your relationship is with the local government in Cincinnati. So funding, so the primary um, funding sources for us are both grants and um, donations, um, kind of in equal measure. We get a tiny bit of grant opportunities through the local government, but there's not a lot of funding that comes from our local government. Kind of in, in an ironic framework, there is a robust extension office in Ohio, but not in our county. Um, And so in one sense, I think the Civic Garden Center fills that void. We would love to have a much more robust extension service to partner up with, but lacking that, I think it probably drives more clientele to our organization. We're a small group. There's seven of us. Um, I'm the only person in the community gardens program, but we like to think of ourselves as that small and mighty organization. But we do work on committees through community efforts um, with local government, just finished up co-authoring a community composting grant to the United States Department of Agriculture, uh, hoping to get some fundings to push that initiative along. Um, So there are ways that we work together. There is the obstacle of water in most of our community gardens on our vacant property that they occupy. Um, And there is an office in the city that's working to address that. We're trying to figure out ways to avoid having to put in a a hydrant on the property, which gets very expensive. But is there a way to maybe truck water around? 
taking advantage of different city resources that are already out in the grounds doing things. So there is some cooperation, but like every organization I'm sure you ever talk to, we could use more money and we could use more support. Yeah, absolutely. I want to just back up just a little bit. So for a number of our listeners, you may not be familiar with the extension system. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? So there are different land-grant universities throughout the United States, and those all have extension services, and that's where um, there is, beyond the university system, there is public um, education and resources available around growing food, typically, sometimes beautification efforts. And those operate in different pockets around the country. And like I said, Ohio has a very robust one. Um, We're actually on the border between Ohio and Kentucky. Kentucky has an even more robust one. But our particular county has maybe one of the most minimally funded of all of that group. Um, and so um, that's where the Civic Garden Center kind of fills that void. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I grew up in Tennessee and I have relatives who uh, were extension agents, actually. So so I'm kind of familiar with, with it in a rural setting um, where it's a very a strong presence in the community. But it's really interesting to hear that it's not that present in urban Cincinnati. I guess that's Hamilton County. Are you aware if that's like a common thing that extension services aren't reaching into urban areas and urban neighborhoods or... That, that's actually not the case. To be honest, I can't exactly tell you why Hamilton County is the outlier, but Columbus, Ohio is, is our capital city in our state, um, and they have a very robust extension office up there. Now, it's also, you know, where Ohio State University, which operates the extension service, is located, and that, that may be part of it. But for whatever reason, Hamilton County is the one, and we're kind of tucked in the lower left corner of the state, just on the, the edge of the state. And I, I don't know if the geography has anything to do with it or not, but for whatever reason, you know, there's... There is a presence. There is a master gardener presence, which is one of the programs that the um, extension office runs, but it is not as uh, robust as in other areas of the state. You know, in a place like Columbus, what that can look like is a lot more master gardener presence, a lot more education, a lot more opportunities for community gardeners to get uh, resources beyond just, you know, maybe one organization like the Civic Garden Center. Fantastic. Now, I was looking on your website and I saw a number of links to things like cookery classes. How are you guys working to take things from, I don't know, from field to plate or from plot to plate, I guess? I I mentioned that I got connected with the Civic Garden Center um, by basically being in a spot where I was laid off from the, the Great Recession. And I very quickly found that there is no more empowering thing, I feel, than growing your own food. To start food to actually then harvest and prepare it to, you know, be resourceful about how you use it, um, I find to be one of the most empowering things that, that possible. Um, and so that's kind of my passion around trying to get these things happening in these different locations. Like I said, we work with whatever their passion is, but the, at the moment I hear any of those kind of touch words, I kind of light up and say, oh yeah, you can do this. In addition to that, so what we're doing is we have our Victory Garden classes that we rolled out this last year. We're monthly classes around growing food, but then also monthly classes around how to prepare food that was harvestable at that moment out of your garden space. So we were trying to address that question of, you know, I've got too many tomatoes, what do I do? How in the world am I going to fix all this kale into something? And so those things that, you know, sometimes people scratch their heads about, or, you know, some cases, unfortunately, it ends up being part of a food waste problem. Mm. Um, So we're trying to get them to be as resourceful and just as have as much knowledge and flexibility in what they're growing and how they use it as possible. 
Yeah, fantastic. I mean, you can always do that drive-by vegetable thing. Like we used to come back from church and find that somebody had left like a giant bag of tomatoes right by our back door, which you know it wasn't the first time that week. Um, <laughs> but um, oh, homegrown tomatoes, amazing. Um, I just wanna I wanna close by asking you a quick question about food in Cincinnati. So you know, I think I've been through Cincinnati, but it's not a place I've spent a lot of time in. But tell us, what are the foods that you really want to eat if you go to Cincinnati? Well, it was interesting because um, I was kind of anticipating this question. We had a really robust conversation around the office yesterday. Uh. So Cincinnati, it's a city of about 300,000 people. And I think it has sort of the, what I believe is sort of the typical food scene for a city that size. You know, a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different directions people are taking it. But the the unique things that people talk about with Cincinnati is we have our chili. Um, So it's a chili that basically was sort of started from Greek immigrants, and it's kind of got a, a cumin and chocolate base to it. And it, the style that we eat it in is it's called a three-way or four-way or five-way. And so it's on a bed of spaghetti noodles. And then typically a three-way is the spaghetti noodles, the chili, and then grated cheddar cheese on top. And then you can throw other things on top of that, but that's kind of the, the classic um, thing, which is very different from what people are expecting with chili. So we're known for that. And then we're also known for getta. And getta is kind of a uh, breakfast sausage patty, uh, pork and beef. Um, but then it's got the addition of oats in it. Um, and that actually was originated here in Cincinnati. Um, and it also has a unique flavor and texture. And in both of these cases, they're very divisive food so, uh, <laughs> menu items. Um, there are people that love them and can't do without them. And when they move away from the city, they have to have them shipped to them. And then there are people that absolutely, especially the people that come to the city, they're like, ah, that's not for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I have to confess, like, I actually grew up on Cincinnati style chili, uh, or at least that's what I was told. Um, my grandfather was from, his family was from Kentucky. And so I think they picked it up from kind of that part of Kentucky. So yeah, it was like what I thought chili was. Until, right. <laughs> yeah. But it's not the same as chili that you would experience uh, in most places in the US or, or indeed uh, around the world. So yeah, fantastic. And thank you so much, Greg. It, it was just a delight to hear about what you're doing in Cincinnati. Oh, one last question. Okay. What is growing in Cincinnati right now? Like what is coming into harvest as far as community gardens go? Must be pretty much peak time right about now. So yeah, lots of things are becoming um, harvestable at the moment. So I I have to think this is a universal thing. Everybody gauges their garden around their tomatoes. Um, We started harvesting tomatoes probably in the last couple of weeks. And harvesting is kind of an interesting word. At my house, my tomatoes, especially the cherry tomatoes, rarely make it inside the house. Uh, My wife is pretty much eating them out out of the garden as we speak. Fantastic. I'm so jealous of tomatoes because it's not quite the same experience here in England. Tomatoes are a tough one for us. I have rarely grown a successful tomato crop here, even in a good summer. So you need a greenhouse. Well, I apologize about rubbing it in on anybody then. (laughs) Um, We'll send you some. Oh, oh, I'd love that. (laughs) Thanks. 
one day I'm going to learn to just keep that recording going because after we stopped the official interview, Greg and I had a really good chat about the value of community gardens from a climate change perspective and the importance of understanding the heat mitigation impacts of land and cultivation in urban areas. It was just, it was such a good chat. And it really, uh, I felt, hit the spirit of what we're trying to do with Global Local Recap. So there's loads that we want to cover in it, but definitely one of the future topics we'll be covering is on urban heat. And he gave me a lot of really great ideas about how we might look at that from a fresh perspective. So we'd love to get your input too about ideas for future newsletters. And if you have great ideas about how to measure the value and impact of different ways that we can address issues of urban heat and um, climate mitigation, that would be amazing too. But let us know any topic that you'd like for us to cover uh, in the Global Local Recap. I mean, it's basically anything that's a global challenge where local solutions play a big, big part. But for us, for the very first episode, gardening and food security was an obvious first choice for this first ever edition. I had a great chat with Alice Creasy about different kinds of gardening and what we can get out of that those different styles, whether it's for food or for looks. Plus, we had a look at just some of the resources in the first edition of our Global Local Recap. But trust me, there's loads, loads more, including a brand new briefing on food security in South Africa that has lessons for local government around the world. Let's listen in to me and Alice having a bit of a banter about different kinds of gardening. Here with our colleague, Alice Creasy, who is a gardener extraordinaire, including a community gardener. Now she's laughing. She's laughing. As I say, gardener extraordinaire. But you are. I've seen pictures of your allotment. It's amazing. We'll share some of those online. But I want to I want to have the fight now. Ornamental versus edible. It's a big debate. Very big debate. I mean, I'm in the edible camp, but I I'm for gardening more generally because it's so good for people's mental health and and kind of biodiversity. So whatever floats your boat, as long as you're getting out there and and getting your hands dirty, that's what matters. Yeah, that's probably true. The reason I'm ornamental, right? So it's like, it's always going to be pastas over lettuce for me. It's always going to be geraniums over runner beans, right? Like that's just the way I act. You know, I want to see amazing color out of my window right of my like and I garden for all seasons I want a structure in the garden but I also know that that's like a really privileged place for me to be because I can see that it's on my own it's in my own house and you know so I can create this like outdoor living room and so yeah the only edibles I do are like you know herbs for my cooking and I tried to defend it but the truth is that I've just failed miserably <laughs> with any time I've tried to do <laughs> yeah, it's all coming out now. <laughs> Any kind of edible gardening. easier than broad beans. <laughs> are they? The, are they producing geraniums like mine? <laughs> I've got massive geraniums. They're huge, and I've had them for years, and it's like an amazing show. So, like, okay, yeah, maybe it's so you know. <laughs> I'm, def- I'm getting all defensive. Yeah, like maybe just sticking a geranium in a pot is not a big deal. But like to produce the like show-stopping magnificence yeah. of like blazing color that I have. Yeah, that's that's. Yeah, real. I feel like this is a sore spot for you though. It's a, it's a lot of pride in these geraniums. <laughs> yeah, but I can see I can see in your background that you have some uh, garden produce behind you. What have you been growing? So yeah, I've got some curly kale behind me. 
from the allotment and some sweet peas and marigolds. So we do have some flowers as well, but the marigolds just kind of come up every year and they kind of intercropped in between everything. So it's a bit of a mix and match. So they're pretty easy. Marigolds can and should often be grown Mm -hmm. with edible things because they have some pest control ability. So (laughs) I love marigolds actually, but it is another thing that I can't grow because I have a massive slug Mm -hmm. problem in my garden. Slugs and snails are just I've tried everything. So I've just given up and I only grow things that they don't like, which has been a long trial and error process. (laughs) Well, as long as you enjoy it, that's the main thing. That is, yeah, it is lovely. It gives me lots of pleasure. The reason we're talking gardening, I mean, I love to talk gardening, don't get me wrong, is because um, our very first issue of the Global Local Recap is all about community gardens. And we've highlighted some previous content. But before... You know, I go into the stuff that the LGIU has been doing on community gardens, sustainability, food security. I want to ask about your experience with community gardens. I've not actually done any direct community garden. I've done some other kind of outdoor volunteering, country park maintenance, that kind of thing, but not community gardens. So what is it and what do you get out of it? Yeah, so there are loads of different kinds of urban agriculture, I guess. There are kind of private gardens and window boxes, things like that and allotments and community gardens, which are more of a collective and people grow things together. They're not kind of partitioned off plots necessarily. And then there are more kind of large scale commercial operations like aquaponics and hydroponics. And yeah, and demand for all of those really has grown intensely, particularly over the last year or so during the pandemic. I was actually speaking to an allotment officer at Edinburgh the other day, and he said that demand for allotments has increased by eightfold over the last year. So someone who wants to get a plot, a popular plot in Edinburgh, um, will have to wait now over 17 years for them to, to acquire some some land to grow on. And I think it's it's obviously worse down south in, in London and, and other places. But I think community gardens at the moment and allotments have been inundated with people wanting to kind of get outside and grow their own food and get their hands dirty. My experience with community gardens has been kind of twofold. First of all, in a research capacity. Um, When I was a student in Glasgow, we did some research for a charity in the north of Glasgow in an area called Proven Mill that had a community garden and was looking to acquire a plot just down the road and they kind of wanted to do a feasibility study essentially and to see if that was a good idea to kind of generate ideas to boost engagement with the existing garden. So yeah that was a really it was a great experience for me. I learned a lot about urban agriculture and and food justice and all these kind of really really important things and then more recently I've actually just started volunteering on a Friday afternoon at a local community garden in Edinburgh which has been really nice. And I think it's the same. I mean, gardening for me has always been quite important, but particularly over the pandemic, just getting out and getting my hands dirty and doing something tangible outside feels really important at the moment. I think a lot of the time, well, I work from home and it feels a bit, it doesn't feel real, a lot of the stuff I do, because it's all online and doesn't feel very kind of physical and tangible and come to the end of a day and I'm like, what have I actually kind of achieved (laughs) A lot, a lot, by the way, guys. But from a personal perspective, I don't feel like I've created anything. So going down to the allotment or going to this community garden or getting onto our balcony and doing some gardening there has just, it makes me feel more connected to to kind of bigger things, I guess, and, and doing something physical. 
Awesome. So before we get to the crop of LGIU resources on community gardening and food sustainability, tell me what are you growing now? Like what is coming in through your garden or community garden? So we've got a little balcony in our flat. And so we've got some tomatoes out there that my partner's grandfather gave us little seedlings. So we've got those out on the balcony, lots of herbs. We've got coriander, sage, some mint. We've also got some aubergine plants, which is maybe a little ambitious, but we're going to see how that goes. They're pretty yeah, though. Yeah, the plants themselves are nice. So either way, we've won. And we've also got some citrus trees, which have surprisingly been giving us some fruit. We've got a few limes on there at the moment. And... And we grew quite a lot of them from seed. Oh, nice. That is really impressive. I have a like an orange tree that was given to me when my son was born at my previous office. And it's still going and it gives really nice fruit. And um, it's like a really special, you know, like obviously it has, it has this really lovely link to it. And it's really nice to be able to enjoy looking at the oranges, yeah. but also eating them. That's such a nice gift. Yeah, it was. And I came back to them like... I don't know, like, I guess it was probably several years ago. So like more than 10 years afterwards. And they were like, I can't believe you still have that. I'm like, well, yeah, it's a plant. Of course, I can look after it. But if people haven't tried that, they do really, they actually do really well. You can get fruit from it. They look nice. The only word to the wise is like, in a bad winter, you do need to make sure that you don't have to bring it in, but just keep it in a sheltered location, like out of really hard winds. And they should they should do okay. Yeah. 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 Well, we live in Edinburgh, so we do usually bring them inside. I don't think they would survive a Scottish winter. They can survive a surprising yeah. amount of cold as long as it's not too harsh. And if you can give them a sheltered spot uh, near a building. But yeah, sustained periods of hard freezes is, is a no. <laughs> No. So anybody who's it's used- nice growing them from seed as well. I think that plants can be quite quite expensive, and it's it's satisfying to, to be able to kind of not spend a ton of money and and do it yourself. How long did it take you to get from like seed to decent sized plant? A good few years. Yeah, I guess it just depends on the conditions. We we used to live in an, an old Georgian flat, and they did not like that. Mm-mm, way too cold. Um, so they they were they survived they were fine but they didn't put on much growth uh, and now we've moved to a flat with triple glazing and they're just they're losing their minds they're so happy so but yeah but a good few years for them to kind of get flowers on them and stuff and start producing fruit yeah wonderful okay well let's have a look at what LGIU knowledge has been growing so yeah the first blog that's in this bundle is one that I commissioned from Angus Council and it's about their food growing strategy which is a, a growing kind of trend among among councils in in Scotland and the UK and I think across the world but in Scotland at least it's kind of stemmed from the 2015 Community Empowerment Act which legislated or asked councils to create a food growing strategy and yeah now they're kind of coming to fruition and it's really exciting and the this strategy in Angus is through the community planning partnership and part of it is looking at creating more allotments and community garden spaces and really engaging communities in that process and responding to the demand for growing spaces, which is really positive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another story that we've got on there is about Western Australia and food innovation and looking into that project and how they've been using this project as a catalyst for some wider approaches to innovating around food. And it's a real it's a real kind of how to. So you can have a look at that. 
And then another one that we've just done is around from mapping to manure. <laughs> or maybe it, maybe it should be the other way around. I don't know. Um, but our colleague, Melissa Thorne, uh, has been engaged with an event on urban farming, which you mentioned, Alice, around this kind of like aquaponics and hydroponics and creating, I'm, you know, really interested in this, like where there are real issues of food insecurity. This isn't just people growing stuff in their, their back garden, but actually providing produce, fruit and vegetables for people who maybe don't have access to it, either for like climatological reasons, like they live in the far north of Canada, or maybe there's um, issues around food deserts, etc. But yeah, so this is this is looking from cities and looking across urban farming projects in different European countries. Yeah, and I think this this piece in particular just highlights the span of different projects that are out there. You know, you say urban agriculture or community agriculture, and they're just it covers such a huge range of different kind of projects, which is really cool. Another piece we have on here is The Power of Public Food by the Soil Association in Scotland. It's a a long-running project and very impactful project in Scotland, which encourages and facilitates local councils to procure local food and kind of ensure that supply chains are kind of fairly local. And there are different stand kind of levels and awards to that process as well. And yeah, the Soil Association have been doing some really amazing, amazing things around around procurement and sustainability with regards to food. And, and I think it, it's, a, it's a scheme that engages so many people within a council and within a community from kind of chief execs to dinner ladies. And, and I think empowers a really huge range of different people, uh, which is amazing. Yeah. And I, you know, I grew up in a more rural area with uh, people who were um, in my family who were, you know, involved in agricultural business and had been farmers. And so, so, you know, I always like understood, but like I'm raising a city boy and he doesn't always know where food comes from. It just comes from the store, I guess. And this is part of like helping people to like see what's going from the field to their plate and understand where they sit in that food chain. Yeah. Um, So I really like the idea of when you shift procurement, you support markets. And and that's a really nice project. We've also got like all kinds of really interesting things around gardens and communities, around community empowerment that I think you did around Glasgow City Council. And I'm, we talked, I guess, about this time last year directly with Naomi Phillips of the British Red Cross about food insecurity. So this is less about necessarily growing your own food, but the kind of wider issues of receiving food and what a big issue that was. And we uh, developed a number of resources looking specifically specifically at food security and what councils were doing during the pandemic to address food insecurity. But of course, things were bad then. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people who are always facing food insecurity, people who are hungry. I mean, you know, that's what it boils down to. And the really important role that councils and others can play in addressing that, both in, in terms of nutritional, you know, like having good food, having secure access to good food, but also addressing yeah. hunger. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and the importance of, yeah, working with external stakeholders to to deliver those services like the Soil Association and, and other charities and um, fair share to, to, to kind of support communities in what is a really, really challenging time. Yeah, absolutely. But 
I think there's other things that we shared, including uh, another of our colleagues talking about how local plant nurseries are adapting to the new normal. And, you know, I know that she gets a lot of um, pleasure from her garden, but also, you know, the importance of these local businesses, both people's livelihoods, but also as places for connection and community centers. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of ties into another article we've got on here about the importance of community gardens and and gardens more generally in in times of crisis and allotments and community gardens outside space as a way of connecting people kind of beyond just, you know, growing food. It's a way of building community resilience and, yeah, creating tighter community bonds. And yeah, I wrote this piece which is included in the bundle about my experience during lockdown and, and how important our allotment continues to be, but has been particularly over the last year, just as a, a kind of a safe space to go to during a time where being outside felt like, yeah, a bit scary a lot of the time and public places were all incredibly busy and everyone was kind of trying to get outside and socially distance at the same time and it got a bit fraught. So this, for me at least, this was a really special place where I could go and it was it was quiet and there were other people there, but in a in a kind of safe, socially distanced way, which I think has been a real privilege over the last year. Yeah, my garden has certainly been a, a massive privilege, but also it's literally like last year during the first lockdown, you know, as we were coming out of that, it never looked so good. There was <laughs> not a brown leaf anywhere. It's just amazing. So I'll probably share some pictures of that. But like at that peak point, I definitely have some deadheading to do in the garden. So I'm not going to go out and snap a picture right now. We're both converts to uh, gardening or uh, maybe less converts is like maybe native (laughs) to it. But so many, you know, if you're not a gardener, there are a lot of resources, no matter where you are in the world, um, we'll have some links that you can find in the show notes that will direct you to community gardens initiatives in different countries. So you can either like join one or start one. And there are lots of resources available as well to help you just get your hands a little bit dirty um, and connect to nature. And this, I don't know, it's a really special, special way. And I would encourage anyone to give it a go. It's amazing. Absolutely. And and to engage more broadly with food and where food comes from. I think, you know, food and farming, whether you're doing it yourself or, or consuming it is such a, it connects to so many different things. It connects to health and the environment, you know, the economy, culture. And I think it's a really powerful and important tool for engaging different people in conversations around yeah, sustainability, mental health, a whole range of different things. So yeah, it's it, I think it's an in, incredibly important theme and activity to be to be talking about at the moment. Obviously, there's loads more in the newsletter itself, and there's a link in the show notes that will help you find all of those links to resources, plus information about how you can sign up for the free weekly Global Local Recap. To end the show, I want to take you back to an episode that we did a couple of years ago, almost exactly two years ago, which featured a walkabout in a community orchard in Clendred Dodd Wells. 
a word, a town. I'm so sorry. That is just so hard for me to say. But it's in it's in Wales, and um, the double L just defeats me. But it's a beautiful town. It's an old Victorian resort town where there are mineral wells, and it's still a wonderful place where there's a great community spirit. And we did a whole episode about community action and action, and you can go back and listen to the whole thing. But given that this is about community gardens, I thought I'd take you for that walk through the orchard. Just a wonderful day with great company. You'll hear from Joe Bodding, Lucy Moore, and Hilary McCauley, and also a little cameo from my partner, Mark. But before I leave you to enjoy that, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. Tell a friend, and please do check out our Global Local Recap. Now, to the orchard. Here in the community orchard, what was when was this set up? I started planting in late 2015. So it's had um, about five years. Yeah, we're still still planting at the moment. We're going to put in raised beds later this year. We've got a grant from Tesco and they're sponsoring raised beds and picnic benches and lots of community events. So raised beds for like vegetables and things like that? Or soft fruit, okay. We thought about vegetables, but then we realised that would entail a lot of watering and we don't have really facilities for watering at the moment. Yeah. What kind of trees do you have here? Oh. How long have you got? Apples, pears, plums, medlar. A couple of walnuts, hazelnuts, cobnuts, damsons, crocodiles, bullies. Quite a pears. variety of apples and pears and plums and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Loganberries, teaberries, blackberries growing wild, red currants, black currants, white currants, justerberry, chokeberry, grapevine. Not doing a lot yet, but you know, this is Wales. And how, how many people come and help out here in the orchard? As always with these things, there was loads of enthusiasm at the beginning. And now it's really just four or five of us who are managing it on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's really variable. Mm-hmm. When we have a big event like a tree planting, it's been up to 40 sometimes, yeah. hasn't it? But, yeah. Uh, yeah, if we do a, a wassail, then we can get 100 people coming out. A wassail? Yeah. It's an excuse to have some mulled cider and wake the trees yeah. up. And it's that sort of thing. ancient tradition, which in this part takes back about three years. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do the wassails in the tree? I don't know anything about that. It really is a, an ancient tradition in this sort of part of the world where it basically is an excuse for a party. So you have lots of warm cider in the middle of winter and um, and you dress the trees up in ribbons and you have things like the Mariluid grey mare, which is a, a, basically someone with a horse's skull and draped over with ribbons and bells and uh, a cloak over them. And they sort of uh, walk around and annoy people and try to bite them and so on. It's all good fun. Yeah. <laughs> And it's really an excuse for the party at a dark, cold time of year. Yeah. Yes, indeed. It's more about community cohesion than anything else. Mm. um, The trees don't actually wake up until a couple of months later normally. Well, who knows if they would wake up if you didn't, yeah. Mm. That is true. So you don't want to take any risks. No. You want to do these things properly. So how much can you you harvest out of here at this point? Because it's all pretty young trees. They're they're like hedge heights. They've also been pruned at the moment, so of course some of the new growth has been cut off each year to, to, to just to shape the trees. And this year we had frost at just the wrong time, so it's a bad year to be asking that. Last year wasn't so bad. Yeah, we had a whole lot of plums last year. Oh yeah, um, and apples as well, yeah. loads of them. But this year we've got one tree with quite a few damsons on, but a lot of the rest has been just the odd apple or a couple of cherries and that sort of thing. Is that just available for people to, to pick and use? That is the plan. It's completely free for anyone to come and um, pick things and take them away with them. And everyone seems to be being sensible and they're just taking a handful or whatever they need at the time. All right, cool. 
So is there anything ready now? Must be some of the Logan berries. Let's yeah, go have a look. We are managing it as, um, well, you can see it looks like a wildflower meadow. Yes. And we're, we're cutting it by saving on a sort of rolling basis. So oh, okay. It's, it's really non-intensive management. And we're also doing it for the wildlife as well as for the uh, growing solutions. Right. We have some, well over 250 species of insects so far, and uh, 75 plants, and that is our one remaining soakberry. Oh, wow. Well, we're experimenting, as you know, with climate change as well. We're not quite sure what's going to be successful in future. It might not be the things that have been traditionally. Mm -hmm. um, we know there's a little um, uh, walnut tree just the other side of the railway line here, so um, that they obviously do quite well, despite being Mediterranean. It's why we planted things like fig and a grapevine and just seeing what happens. Just seeing what happens, yeah, cool. Because we don't have to make any money out of this. So, so how is this funded? And, um, the land is council well, land? Council and the they don't charge us anything for leasing it. We just agree to look after it. Um, the trees were sponsored by local businesses and individuals. So I think it was something like £30 for a tree or £50 for two bushes. And that gave us a bit of excess to buy things like tree stakes and mulch mats and things for tying up the trees and labels so we can know who donated the things. And that's all completely volunteer run from that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's an initiative by a couple of local organisations as a collaboration. So the Friends of Rock Park on the one hand and and the local transition group, which we all came in from. So it's just a sort of little collaborative venture. And um, we, the whole ethos has been to make it as simple and as straightforward as possible. So the whole process is self-funding, and um, it involves the local community as much as possible, so that they take on some sort of ownership for looking after it as well. It's not something that... Well, the, the plan is it's not something that we're doing for them, but that yeah. everyone does a bit together. It turns out it is mostly something we're doing for them. We <laughs> <laughs> have got some people who we've just been chatting to as we've been around the auction and said things like, oh yeah, something a bit of water for the trees if it's a bit dry, so keep an eye on the beehive. Yes. Oh, there's a beehive? Okay. Oh, I see the hive. Yeah, so we have a beehive and it's not one a traditional hive for honey production. This is what's called a worry hive, which is basically a natural hive. So the idea is simply to have a, a place for the bees to live, uh, which is so they can pollinate the orchard and so on. And occasionally we had boxes at the bottom. Occasionally, eventually, we'll take one off the, you know, the top and put another one on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And then there might be a little bit of honey that we have some beekeepers on hand who are you know, very good at it, and they'll take some of that. But we partly put together. Um, this is an observation window as well. Oh, cool! So we can see how they're doing inside. Oh, yeah. There's a there's a you can pull a little drawer front off and actually see inside to the hive. And they're doing well. Yeah. So there's more bees in there than when I last looked. It might be because it's a cold day, so there aren't so many out foraging. Right. On a really hot sunny day, this will be absolutely buzzing. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think they've just had a brood hatch as well. So they've been uh, rearing up the, the next lot and right. getting slightly annoyed with the window being open so before they start investigating stupid. Yeah, we don't want to make the bees angry. But, uh, but no, they're lovely. And we come and visit them quite regularly so they get used to a voice. Because bees do know their people. There's a, a tradition, I don't know if it's tradition here, but like when someone dies you have to tell the bees. Yeah, yeah that's definitely a tradition here too. Okay, it's probably where we got it from. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
we're thinking we might need one or two more in future because it's, it's only one small hive for quite a big orchard now. yeah but um but they're busy little bees they are, they are. <laughs> they're pollinating everybody's gardens as well yeah true i mean they're not just go- not just going that way no no i've actually heard people there's a bee on my foot oh don't panic it'll be fine just get you out of the way but yes, we know there are people just the other side of the, the railway line who have gardens there, with pear trees that never produced anything, um, who are now um, getting loads of pears. Yeah. So, all these sort of knock-on effects. And another neat thing is that you'll notice there's a hazel tree behind us, which is covered in hazelnuts. Yes. And normally, around here, the squirrels get them. And at this stage, just before they're ripe, they'll be going in and basically taking all of the nuts. But bees don't like squirrels. Oh. So around beehives, apparently they think they're tiny bears or something after the honey. Um, <laughs> Do squirrels ever go into hives? N- um, not that I know of. But right. There's something about their relationship that bees basically chase them off. Right. And you don't get squirrels around beehives. Oh. So we've got a little a hedge that was planted recently as well, which has got lots of hazel trees in. And hopefully we'll be able to actually get quite a lot of hazels in the future. Mm. Just the bees easy. Lovely. Yeah.